Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. We're all familiar with the labyrinth of the healthcare system. The paperwork, the confusion, and the cost can be overwhelming. One of the blind spots in wealth management at all levels is the advice for the most significant liability most families will face, healthcare. I spoke to John Samuels, founder of Better Health Advisors. For more than 20 years, John Samuels served as a senior healthcare leader in top New York City hospitals, including Northwell Health and Mount Sinai Beth Israel. In 2016, John founded Better Health Advisors, an independent healthcare advisory firm, to share the expertise he developed as a healthcare insider with members of the public. He brings a unique viewpoint on the intersection between healthcare and wealth planning. After listening, I hope you better understand the landscape around helping families deal with this imprecise, paperwork-heavy, massively expensive, and emotionally taxing issue. Welcome aboard, John. Fraser, thanks. I appreciate being on. Look forward to uh, talking with you. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about your background is that you made the conversion from emergency medicine into forming this company around advising people how to access the healthcare system, how to be intelligent around it. Maybe go into your bio a little bit and what led to that decision. Yeah, for me, I spent 20 years in hospital leadership. And too often I saw individuals, especially high net worth individuals, not get great care. And I saw great hospitals and great doctors, but individuals don't always get optimal care. And for me, I started a firm that helps individuals get better care. And I find more value in that personally. I find satisfaction in that. It's rewarding. I was at the bar a few weeks ago and a guy walked up to me and said, are you John Samuels? And I said, yes. And he said, you saved my father's life. And that's so much more rewarding than sitting in a hospital and doing budgets and staffing and not buying pens and toner and paper in December to save the budget. I enjoy this work. And I think there's a gap in the market for individuals, especially high net worth individuals, to get better care. We're going to talk about this a little bit just in terms of navigating these systems and these bureaucracies, which just going to the doctors, you know, one thing, but if you're having to take care of other people, it can become a full-time job. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But one thing that I think is interesting, too, about the way you think about this is when you're dealing with advisors and people who are part of the advice team for high net worth people and getting them to think about their overall, let's call it wealth picture to include their health. Maybe you can go into that a little bit, because I think that's an interesting concept. And it's something that I think good advice alludes to, but doesn't necessarily address directly. From my perspective, so many individuals spend time managing their wealth. They put resources to that. They have wealth advisors, they have accountants, they spend numerous hours planning, and they're looking at insurances and all these things. But often what people really value is their healthcare, and they value their well-being. And I think from an advisor's perspective, an advisor looking out and thinking about healthcare 
as much as when they look at the entirety of an individual, I think it's their fiduciary responsibility to take that into consideration. So for example, we have a client who is in his early 60s and he's looking at assisted living facilities where they could cost $300,000 and more a year. So if he's going to be there for 20, 25 years, that's a six, $7 million investment. And that's something that the wealth team needs to be aligned on in the work that we're doing. So I feel that health and wealth are intimately connected. And we often work with advisors, trusted estate attorneys, and others to make that connection. I like the distinction you make there. There's sort of a big difference between living and retiring and living well. And for those people who are in that high net worth bracket, however they got there, I think there's an expectation that sometimes the numbers and the financial planning and the estate planning, et cetera, it doesn't quite mark out well. And so I I think it's a very interesting point that continues to need to be hammered home. And I'm glad to hear that you think about it in that context. Yeah, thank you. What are some of the things that you think people need to understand better about the intersection of health and wealth that, uh, you know, maybe glaring misconceptions? I think one is that people think that their wealth is set, they have a plan, and they think they're set for their health as well. They have a concierge doctor, they have some sort of medical insurance, and they think, okay, I'm all set. However, often they're not. So just in paperwork and documents, do they have a POA? Do they have HIPAA? Do they have a living will? And then do they have a broader plan in place for their health care? So do they have a plan that maps out what we would do in different healthcare scenarios? Do they have a plan that maps out the costs of those things? And have they thought through that? So we had a call with a wealth advisor last week where our client is in her 70s and she's sick and needs around the clock nursing care. And her son also is sick, he's total care, and he also needs round the clock nursing care. And the wealth advisor called and said, well, what kind of expenses are we looking at today and going forward? And we're able to help project that and talk to them about where their exposure is and also come up with solutions to defray costs, but still give people really good care when needed. So one of the things that I talk to people about in sort of informal conversations about this, especially for people who've never really experienced the elder care system or late stage health care, is that at a certain point, it's a rule of thumb. I kind of think of it as at a minimum one tuition per parent per year as something to frame out. And then that gets to the point where people sort of understand educational tuitions and paying for that type of thing. But they haven't really sort of framed it around that at the parental level. Is that a decent rule of thumb or is that uh, it definitely you can go up from there as much as you want, of course, and all sorts of other conditions can add on to that. But to me, that's something that I think modern financial planning is missing is that assumption. And I think it's an assumption you could, quote unquote, get lucky and have a very quick illness from a pure financial sense, but oftentimes with late stage care and the improvement in the medical system, people can live for a long time in expensive environments. I think you're right. And and often that one event can be episodic and handled, or it can spiral into larger things that from a medical perspective needs to be addressed as well as financially. One of the things that bridges the gap between the work that we do with 
planners from a financial perspective is us giving clients a handwritten health plan. And the health plan looks at, are you addressing everything medically? Do you have the right doctors? Are you prepared if there's an emergency? What will happen down the road medically? And what will all this cost? So we have a client who is a CEO of a large tech company that you know, and he came to us and said, I'm not sure if my parents are set. If something happens, I don't know what I would do. So he was thinking in the future, my parents are in their 80s, if something happens, I don't know what I would do. And he engaged us. So he had an expert who helped him. We assessed the parents and told them of their risks and were on call for them and checked in with them frequently. And on Christmas Eve, the mother, the wife fell and had to go to the hospital. And we knew her, we knew her medical records, we knew her diagnoses, we knew her medications. We were able to quickly support her in her hospital care. At the same time, we sent a caregiver to the house to care for the husband because she was the main caregiver. So it was only because the son thought ahead what would happen if something happens to my parents, I'm not in a position to manage this. Actually, he was traveling at the time. We were able to jump in and do that. And that takes some planning. And the planning is the same work that wealth advisors do for financial that we do for healthcare. Let's take that example a little bit further. And I'm not saying this is the case with your tech CEO, but as people, especially wealthy people, are coming offline, either they're selling their business or they're retiring from an executive job where they may be used to W-2 income and company-provided health insurance. And then there is a potential gap somewhere in the 50s to when they reach Medicare age. And it's something that I have sort of this vague, foggy notion of things on that front. But I do know that it's tough to get health insurance, especially for families, especially for young retirees, especially for people who exit a typical corporate environment. What do you do on that front to help people think about that? So it's a typical problem. We get called with that twice a week. Exit my company. I'm in my 50s. I lost my vehicle to buy health insurance. At our core, we solve problems and we solve this problem. So there are two ways to get health insurance in our country. One is through an employer and one is through the government. And the government is Medicare for the elderly, Medicaid for low-income individuals, and Obamacare. So that's through the government. And the other way is through your employer. And Obamacare, which is a marketplace, was the vehicle for individuals to buy insurance like this so that they can be covered. And in most states in our country, the problem with that is that the insurance is not nearly adequate for the care that individuals require, especially for someone who was a CEO and is a high net worth individual. So for example, most Obamacare plans don't offer out-of-network benefits. So if somebody's diagnosed with something, you can't go to Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins or Hospital for Special Surgery or MD Anderson and things like that. Plus, there's a lot of doctors you can't see. And often you can't just pay for it privately. So working with an expert will help people come up with creative solutions to address this. Because if you don't have the right insurance, it's often very hard to get the right care and treatment. What does a creative solution look like? Is that sort of joining a pool? Do private sector options exist where large or even small numbers of people get together and so the insurance industry can use the law of large numbers to create a situation where you can join an insurance pool? So a lot of the pools got eliminated 
that was a solution pre-Obamacare, but all the pools got eliminated with Obamacare. So often the solution can be gain access to an LLC, gain access to a company, set that company up or rearrange that company in a way that fulfills the state's requirements to purchase insurance, and then use that company as a vehicle to buy insurance, which would mean identifying a broker, looking at different plans, choosing the right plan, and executing that plan. Got it. So let's stitch back a little bit to something that I have some personal experience with, and I know a lot of clients and families deal with, which is the new full-time job that they take on when they are having to manage the paperwork when intersecting with the healthcare system or the elder care system, or even identifying whom the right providers should be in any of those situations. Maybe take us through a little bit about how you analyze that and how you create some structure for people to help give them some assistance in what can be just this really Byzantine bureaucratic scenario. Yeah, well, it's incredibly confusing. And often the staff on my team have deep, deep, deep expertise in this space. So you're sitting down with someone on our team who's worked in healthcare and case management for 15, 20 years and are very familiar with hospital billing practices and with doctor's office practices. So part of it is understanding the treatment that was performed and matching that up to the care that was delivered. And then we as an intermediary are able to identify the right, at least if it's a billing perspective, identify what the accurate bill should be and if people should pay that. And often our clients, and you, you, know, you alluded to this, are overwhelmed anyway, have lots going on medically, have lots going on other things in their life, and don't want to be bothered with all these kind of bills. And is this a bill? Is not a bill? Having an expert who does that, who's done that for years, allows people to have the assurance that those kind of paperwork things are being taken care of. So sometimes someone on our team will meet with a client once a week in their apartment and go through the bills and take them and identify what's accurate and talk to the, their family office about paying them and so forth. There's other times, by the way, when we were able to negotiate bills and got our clients great discounts or monies paid back to them for identifying accuracies or inaccuracies to help uh, alleviate costs. In terms of identifying the right tool for the job, whether it's the right elder care system, the right nursing home, or maybe if we go down age a little bit, maybe an addiction treatment facility. Oftentimes, let's say the addiction treatment facility issue, that issue, it's a problem that has been bubbling up for a while, but the family has little direct experience in that. They may have lots of options in terms of geography, but then there's sort of a set of names that pop up, but you don't even know whom they should talk to within those institutions. How do you help advise families to get smart about that fast so that they can certainly address the problem as quickly as possible, but then address it in the best way possible long term? So addiction treatment is incredibly complicated. Majority of patients with addiction problems also have mental health issues. So at the very least, there's two things happening, dual diagnosis, we call it running concurrently. And then often individuals who suffer from addiction issues also suffer from physical health issues. And by the way, this is why it's important to look at somebody holistically, not just look at the one thing happening. We'll often get a call from a family office and they'll say, which of these facilities is the best one? And they'll name 
five or six of the top places, according to U.S. News and World Report or something. And from our perspective, one of the ways that we address that is to do really hands-on work, is to understand our client really well and know who they are. And once we get to know them, then we who do this full-time, it's all we do, we have a different list than they do and are able to break that down and then ask the right questions to different programs. So often families are Googling. And look, Google is not a second opinion. And I think people need to understand that. Google often shouldn't be the source of information for programming. We have a client who is overseas and she has an eating disorder as well as mental health. And she went to a eating disorder program that's considered a great place. And she had a terrible experience there. It wasn't the right fit for her. It was too strict for her. The mental health component wasn't strong enough. And that's one of the reasons why I started my company, because often great patients don't get great care at places, even if they're a great place. So we have found a different place for her, a place that matches what's happening with her better, with her philosophy on eating disorder and their strength around mental illness. And she's going to go there. By the way, while she's there, we're going to work with the team every week to make sure they're doing what they need to be doing and that they're armed with her previous medical history so she can get really good care. The term concierge medicine gets thrown around a lot. And I'm sure it's like the term family office or hedge fund. It means lots of different things to lots of different people. How do you think about it, either as an overlay to typical insurance or as a consultancy? How do we get our arms around that terminology? The majority of concierge medicine, which has started in Seattle and has boomed in the last several decades, the majority of concierge medicine is delivered through primary care. So often your primary care doctor is would be a concierge doctor. And I'm very supportive of concierge doctors. I think it's a great concept. And if a doctor is willing to give a client of mine more time and more availability and do further testing, uh, that's a great thing. So it can be very uh, helpful for certain patients depending on what they're going through. Concierge medicine stops at what they're doing in front of the patient. And I believe patients need additional services. So staff on my team attend appointments with patients. Staff on my team interact directly with hospitals. Staff on my team look for specific programs when needed, like substance abuse or elderly care programs. Staff on my team set up care at home and all these add-ons to what concierge doesn't do. Often concierge can be a good solution for somebody who needs more fortified primary care, but it stops. It really stops at that. This question just popped up in my mind as I was walking back to trust and estate planning and things like that. But how do you interact with the documents? There's HIPAA issues and access to information, powers of attorney, the whole mishmash of documents that allow people to take care of other people if something pops up. Maybe the better way to put this is how do you intersect with the, let's say, trust and estates lawyer or the personal lawyer to make sure that the right people are staffing the right roles for healthcare for people? To me, there's two questions there. One is sort of the HIPAA confidentiality. And for us, this is what we're used to. This is our bread and butter. All of our clients sign a HIPAA release allowing us access to their medical information so that we can talk to the medical team, we can talk to others so that we can support their care. So when we engage with a, if our, our client who went to the hospital who fell, we had a HIPAA release that we shared with the hospital staff 
uh, indicating that they can talk to us. So the hospital staff knows that form, they're familiar with that, and we're able to talk to the medical team about that. For people outside the medical team, we have conversations with our clients about what they want us to share and what they don't want us to share. Do you want us to share your medical information with your wealth advisor in your family office? Do you want us to share the cost of things with them? Do you not want us to share that? So we have discussions with them and they sign releases indicating to us who they want us to share information with and and who not to. That's useful to know because I think that for people who sort of dip their toe in the water, they see this huge raft of documents coming, they hear about privacy and so on. It's good to hear how that operates in practice. The other caveat about that is our healthcare system has grown vertically in the last 10 years, even with COVID dramatically. And with that, I mean, patients are seeing doctors through an app. Patients are having a doctor come to their house for a visit. Patients are doing telehealth. So that means the collection of all these records and the picture of the patient is harder to get. It's hard to get for the doctor, but it's also hard to get for the patient, but we can help be that source. So patient goes and sees their primary care doctor and the patient says, oh, when I was traveling, I did an urgent care visit or I did a telehealth visit with X. And I think they said something about my A1C. I'm not sure what they said, but I'm okay. And it would be a health advisor's job to gather that information because it's key medical information and pass that off to the doctor so that the doctor is armed with the right information. So because healthcare has grown vertically and there's more access avenues for patients, then that makes it more complicated for the treating doctor to have the right information to make medical decisions about them. An advisor, an expert can help be that person to tee that up. I really like the idea of having a centralized repository for that information. There's takeovers of medical facilities, there's turnover and people retiring, and theoretically the file is somewhere, but to have that centralized makes a lot of sense to me. We're going to wind down in a second here, but I have sort of this closing question that may be somewhat controversial, but the intersection between the healthcare planning which we've talked about why it's important to be thinking of that in conjunction with overall financial care and the financial services profession. I worry that the financial services profession is at best hazy and at worst not doing a great job of really trying to pin down what could be a gigantic unfunded liability, both at the current generation or the first generation or even the next generations. What do you see as a good practice on that front? Is that really just financial advisors asking better questions? Or is this a function of maybe having something a little more structured in their intake process or general advice? And where do they start and stop as far as being smart about this stuff? I think that financial advisors would be best to, uh, first of all, get educated about how healthcare works and what exposures they could have. We have a client who was prescribed the medication that costs $9,000 a week, and she's 19. So for financial advisors to know there are risks out there and getting educated is helpful. Financial advisors, I think, should not be afraid to ask questions. You know, I heard about your wife getting diagnosed. I know your father is sick and looking at nursing homes. Should we have a conversation about the costs associated? Do you want me to introduce you to an expert who can help walk you through that? So advisors, I think, should not be afraid to have those conversations, knowing that 
there's a resource for them. And I think the other piece is advisors should know that it's not their role to solve the problem. We're not going to say to them, it's not their job to find the right nursing home for mom or the right treatment facility for someone or the right concierge doctor for a patient. They can be the conduit to having an expert come in and give that information to their client. So I think to be educated, ask questions, know your role, have your resources to connect you to resources to get people what they need is how they can best suit their clients. I think what you're describing is a really terrific resource, especially for financial advisors, lawyers, trustees, especially people who actually have actual fiduciary responsibility for beneficiaries and how to distribute assets to take care of health issues and and understand health issues so that they're making good financial decisions around that. John, how do we find you? How do we look you up if your services are interesting or otherwise uh, some of the things you're talking about? My company is called Better Health Advisors. And my email is john at Better Health Advisors. I can be contacted there and I can be contacted personally if somebody wants to talk about someone's information or are concerned about a healthcare situation. And getting back to what you said about wealth advisors, on my website, we have a resource where what wealth advisors should be looking out for when somebody comes in their office. So a client of ours called their family office last year at the middle of the night and said he wants to make a X billion dollar donation to the Met. And the family office knew to call us and said something's going on. So we have a tool that says these are things to look out for. Erratic spending, change in condition, over worry, anxious, anxiety, agitation, those kind of things. So to look out for those things. And when that happens, contact an expert who can get people the right information for their clients. John, this is a terrific discussion. Thank you very much. Your contact info will be in the show notes too. And I appreciate you being on. Thanks for taking the time. Fraser, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.